Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, economists and strategists are trying to really calculate the impact, the economic impact that the coronavirus will have on global GDP going forward. But certainly one of the industries that is most at risk is the global technology space. We heard uh, Greg Jarrett just talking about Apple and, and Foxconn. So let's start there. John Butler, Senior Telecom Service and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, John, let's start with Apple because that's kind of always the poster child, I think, if you will, for dependence upon China and supply chain and, you know, kind of it sells into China, it sources out of China. Give us a sense of what's going on with Apple, with Foxconn, and kind of how you think this is going to play out. So I think the, I think Apple is in a little bit of trouble for the current quarter. So Foxconn, which is the main manufacturer of the iPhone, um, has had its factories closed up until now. Apparently this morning, 10% of the workforce is back at one of two factories. But we've had a delay in the opening after the Lunar New Year, and I think those delays are going to continue as Beijing continues to really try to try and lock down this virus by limiting people's travel and in instituting quarantines before people can get back to work and so forth. There's a difference between a short-term disruption where the demand for the iPhone picks up right away as soon as people can go back to the stores and as soon as production ramps up, and a longer-term disruption that actually has a more material effect on the business overall. What's that tipping point here for Apple? Well, I think Apple and Foxconn have both been sort of talking about moving beyond China. There are lower-cost regions in terms of cost of production. China's getting relatively more expensive. And I think Apple's lack of diversification in terms of where it makes the iPhone uh, is really biting them here. And it's a reminder that they need to diversify geographically, perhaps, in terms of where they make the iPhone. So what has Apple said, what have they said publicly about the financial impact here? Again, they get, to, I don't know, up to 20% of their sales are in China. They make make most of their stuff in China that they sell around the world. This seems to me like it could be more than a one quarter thing because it's going to take a while for these factories to get ramped up again and build inventory and distribute it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's my concern, Paul, is I think this uh, illness now is going global. So... In terms of the impact in China, I think it's sort of confined to, let's say, the ne next month or so. But more broadly speaking, you know, for Apple, you know, there's a concern that people aren't going out to the retail stores as much. So I think there'll be, my opinion is, we'll see an impact in the second quarter. But if it continues to spread globally, I think it potentially could spill out over into third quarter. And I need to say one thing, the company continues to say that they factored this impact into their latest guidance. So coronavirus was already an issue when they set the guidance for the current quarter but it has since gotten worse. So. One one thing that this uh, this situation has really highlighted for me is just how much of an engine China is in terms of production of electronic parts. I mean, it's just yep. such a massive source of all of these products. Can you give us any kinds of sizes, scopes, any any kind of 
understanding of just how crucial not only China, but in particular Wuhan, which is the hardest hit area is for these types of products? It's hard to say, Lisa. You know, the global supply chain is so huge and it's so diverse and it's been diversifying geographically. But I think you hit the nail on the head. China is still the world's factory floor. So for Apple, even beyond Han Hai, there are other manufacturers for them in China that are being impacted by coronavirus. Uh, in terms of pegging an actual number on to what what percent of total global electronic manufacturing is in China, it's anyone's guess. I'll throw out 70% as a guesstimate, but I- 70%? I, I actually have no idea. I've never really run the numbers, so. So John, one of the things say. for Apple, the, the bull case is 5G. Is there any risk to this manufacturing supply chain issue impacting what could be a, you know, this 5G story building for Apple? Not yet, Paul. You know, they typically need a couple of months of lead time in terms of building the new devices. That would put us in July in terms of the start of production, maybe even mid-June conservatively. And I think at least in China, we're going to be clear of this crisis by then. The real issue is Apple is reportedly going to launch the iPhone 9, a low-cost sequel to the iPhone SE, if you remember that one. Uh, priced at $399, and that was going to have a March launch date, according to Bloomberg. And so we'll see what happens there. I, I have a feeling that's almost certainly going to get pushed out by this, uh, by this epidemic. You know, I could just uh, keep speaking with you. Uh, and one thing that you said that when you walked in that really was compelling to me, John, was about the factory floor, the Foxconn factory floor and how they have to increase the ventilation and make it safer for people to come back and what that will take in order to get the sign off. And there are all these questions. There, there are a lot of little things you don't think about. So when you're ma manufacturing the iPhone, you need really superior ventilation to limit dust, uh, the risk of dust getting into the devices, but that also, that kind of system promotes the spread of a virus, and so somehow they're gonna have to work out a solution to that, and that, I think, is one of many small items that uh, we don't always think about. John Butler, thank you so much. Always illuminating. John Butler, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. Well, as Greg Jarrett said, you just can't keep a good market down. We have the uh, Dow is it good? up 100. I, it's up 112 points, and it's you know it's kind of shrugging off the coronavirus. It appears uh, to help us get a sense of what is going on out there. Scott Clemens, chief investment strategist for Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, based in Pittsburgh, but actually in here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You're based in New York, though, New right? York. New York. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. So, Scott, thanks for being in our studio again. You know, Lisa and I earlier in the morning we were looking at commodities, and commodities are all down. The Metals are down and kind of reflecting, presumably, uncertain global GDP growth exacerbated by the concerns of the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. No such issue, really. 
with the equity markets. What do you make of that? At the risk of dating myself, I'm, I've referred to this as the Timex market. You remember those yep. old commercials <laughs> that takes a licking and keeps on ticking? Think about what this market has been confronted by just in the past couple of months between escalation of tensions in the Middle East around year end, of course, the presidential impeachment and trial, and now the coronavirus. I think that investors are looking through all of this noise to the underlying fundamental driver that is personal consumption. 68% of GDP is personal spending. As long as the labor market is healthy, as long as the housing market is healthy, that engine of economic activity and therefore earnings and therefore the market is okay. I thought you were going to say they're all looking at the under, underlying driver, which is the Federal Reserve. Helps, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, but how much is that, yes. that sort of what's driving this? Well, it's meaningful. I think of that as an insurance policy of sorts. Not only the Fed's willingness to lower interest rates last year and send the signal that they intend to keep them so this year, but the balance sheet operations as well. So you've got a fundamental backdrop of a decent economic environment, not great, but durable, stable economic environment with the insurance policy of easy monetary policy, that's a pretty powerful combination. All right. So again, we've, uh, you know, we had such a great 2019. Uh, and even with some headwinds, uh, 2020 is a pretty solid start as well. What sectors should we be looking at here, given that we're 11 years or so into this economic cycle? Is it defensive? Do I go back out on the risk curve? What am I do on the equity side? We like those equity sectors and plays that depend on this underlying fundamental strength in, in the consumer. So consumer discretionary, consumer staples, they're sort of old-fashioned, what we used to call the blue chips. They pay dividends. They're not terribly exciting or sexy. They're not Tesla going up and down 10 or 15% a day. But for investors who are interested in preservation of wealth and long-term accumulation of wealth, potentially with some income needs on the side that healthy dividend yields can meet, that's the sectors of the market where we find the best value and the best long-term plays. What about the Russell 2000? I'm going to throw this at you because I harp on this every single day. I'm looking at it. It's the, the small cap, small mid cap shares that have underperformed down on the year, yeah. even as you see new records on the S&P and NASDAQ. Yeah, and that's not a new thing. If you look at the performance of large cap versus small cap domestic stocks going back three years, five years, seven years, 10 years even, the large caps have outpaced the, the small and medium caps. And, and, and it surprises me. Because well, what's the message? You, well, you would think in an environment in which there are concerns about global trade, well predating the coronavirus outbreak. I mean, think of just the ongoing China-U.S. trade dispute. Domestic companies ought to be doing better than, than, than companies with a big multinational exposure. So we, we have in our portfolios actually dialed up that smaller mid-cap exposure. And we've also dialed up the non-dollar exposure as well because non-dollar assets, both emerging and international, have vastly lagged the good old-fashioned S&P 500. So we think increasingly that's where the value plays are. That's not a bearish call on the markets. It's just an observation of where the bigger opportunities lie. Well, I'm glad you mentioned emerging markets because uh, we've been talking about that as well this morning. And I'm looking to just bring up the five-year chart of the MSCI Emerging Markets Index versus the S&P 500 and clear underperformance. And yep. that underperformance even widened out a little bit in, in, in 2019 and yep. 2020. What's the catalyst for, can an emerging markets call work in a world where we have trade tensions, phase one deal or not withstanding, mm -hmm. and you know maybe some kind of threat to global growth from this exogenous factor called the coronavirus? It's, it, it's hard, Paul, because those are substantial obstacles to sentiment at, at least. But if you look back even, and, and, and I don't have it in front of me, but in a mind's eye, over a 10-year trailing period, the S&P 500 large cap U.S. has outpaced emerging markets in dollars, like for like comparison, by a thousand basis points annualized. 
that, that's an extraordinary rate of performance yeah. differential. It doesn't necessarily mean there are valuation opportunities in the emerging world, but it strongly hints at it. The problem, of course, with a value-based investing approach is, is as good as it is, and it's what we do, it's our bread and butter, it's a horrible timing tool because cheap things can get cheaper, and that's been the story in emerging markets. But the valuation gap between the developed world and the emerging world is wider than it's been since the summer of 1998. And you have to cast your memory back, but that was the sort of getting close to the peak of the dot-com bubble here in the States, but rolling crises throughout the rest of the world. Venezuelan debt crisis, Thai bot crisis, Russian debt. I mean, pretty hor horrible time for emerging equities. We're back to that level of, uh, of gap between valuations of the two markets. When does the uh, coronavirus and more importantly, the ripple effects from it economically become something more than noise and, and potentially even change your thesis? It's a good question. And, and the, the, the difficulty with that is as unpredictable as the virus itself is, people's reaction to it is even more unpredictable. Institutional reaction to it is more unpredictable. So not to diminish the human tragedy of it, the decisions by various governments to quarantine whole cities, to shut down air routes, to shut down trade, it's kind of the right thing to do. You want to limit the susceptible part of the population to the virus spread, but it'll certainly punch a hole in first quarter GDP. I think we'll get an early indication of that from some bellwether companies. I mean, listen to not only the earnings report, but interim reports from FedEx or UPS or you know, even Boeing on airport, uh, airplane orders, certainly airlines themselves. We won't get the GDP numbers till late April distant, distant future from now. So we're, we're listening to the anecdotal information coming out of companies. So far, we think it's sort of a tenth of a percent, two tenths of a percent hit to GDP, domestic GDP in the first quarter. But there's no question that if the response to it exacerbates, is exacerbated, the hit could be bigger. It's an election year. Do we care historically? As equity investors? You know, historically, no, but there's nothing about this election that's historically normal. Um, and, and, and part of the challenge, Paul, is that the Democratic field in particular is still so wide that we haven't really honed in on what genuine policy proposals might be. So I could certainly spend some time analyzing the most recent tax proposal or trade proposal from any number of Democratic camps. But at this point, candidates are still vying for lanes. They're still throwing more ideas out than there are actual policies. So it's hard to tell. I think once we get past probably not until Super Tuesday will that field begin to narrow to a point where we can actually analyze what the likely implications are of a smaller handful of potential democratic outcomes. There's no question in my mind, though, that political developments this year could be the cause or at least the blame for a market correction, the likes of which we haven't seen since August of last year. We're sort of overdue one. The blame for it. I like the way you couch that, Scott Clemens. Uh, well, well crafted. Scott Clemens, chief investment strategist at Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, overseeing about $40 billion. And uh, he joins us here in our interactive broker studios. One of the fallouts from the Senate acquittal of President Trump is President Trump has kind of you know, seeking retribution on those that he feels uh, were against him during the impeachment process. We saw uh, on Friday, um, you know, two days uh, after being acquitted, Gordon Sundland announced that he had been at 
ousted as a U.S. ambassador to the European Union. Army Lieutenant Colonel Vidman from the National Security Council also let go. So lots of issues going on here as it relates to kind of the fallout from the impeachment process. To get some color, we welcome Clint Watts. Clint's a Distinguished Research Fellow for the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at George Washington University. Clint, so a lot's going on here. We also had some New York being part of a global entry uh, program being revoked by the president. So the question is, how much does all of this impact kind of our national security, our security apparatus? What are some of the fallouts, do you think, if any? I, I think the big thing is that people will become reflexive and withhold, uh, meaning if I were in government right now, I, I think you'd always try and gauge uh, do you deliver the president something he doesn't want to hear? And what are the consequences of that? And, and I think it's pretty consistent over the president's term here that you see him being uh, retaliatory if he doesn't necessarily get what he wants or hear what he wants. And he also sees uh, U.S. government officials, longtime public servants, as loyalists or not loyalists, which means you have to pick a side. And so that can be troubling both in terms of executing national security and foreign policy for sure. I thought uh, Gordon Sondland's testimony was quite remarkable when uh, when he went to uh, uh, Congress because he basically said everybody was in on this and I was in on it. I thought it was fine. And this is what actually happened. And so when you look at kind of how this has played out now uh, over the last couple of months, now he's suddenly on the uh, on, on the stick end instead of the carrot. So I, I think it can be troublesome over time. It's very hard to run a government that way. Clint, there's a question about the morale among national security professionals. Then there's a question about national security itself with some of the measures. And uh, when we talk about the global entry issues, basically uh, President Trump proposing to bar New Yorkers from enrolling in it or, or applying for it newly, uh, there's a question of how much of a national security threat are programs like global reentry and things where people have uh, expedited access through, through security lines? I mean, is there some true threat uh, that has emerged as a result of them? Yeah, I don't think there's been a true threat. I think, it, you know, by and large, what you find is that if you give more data the data and information to the government, you uh, give up more privacy of your information, then you can get accelerated through these processes. I think what's interesting about it is it, is it really plays to the access to the wealthy, meaning that if you have money, uh, you can buy these things. It's, it's not a cheap service. Uh, I think it's a couple hundred dollars that you have to do. You have to spend additional time to go out to the airport and get screened. And so if you're someone of lower means, you're obviously not going to be able to do that. Um, so it, it's kind of an access program. It does beg the question, though, of like who uh, can get that access and, you know, what are the requirements for it? Or does it give people uh, extra value? Like if you're a foreign adversary, uh, can you work your way into those systems? It's unlikely. It's probably a low probability event, but it just shows that there's not a universal acceptance of what security is, uh, that there are different standards for different kinds of people. So, Clint, as it relates to some of these whistleblowers and the retribution, I'm thinking about the, again, the Army Lieutenant uh, Colonel Alexander Vindman uh, being pushed out of his position. Is that is that in the prerogative, to what extent is that in the prerogative of, of President Trump? How common is that type of thing? Uh, or is this kind of out of the bounds? It is in the prerogative of the president to do that. It's just quite uncommon. I, you know, I just saw a report, I think a couple hours ago, that uh, Venman was already asking or, you know, sort of requesting to be moved from his position when his natural time 
uh, was to come through. Usually these are one, two, three-year assignments, you know, for the military folks that go over to the, to the White House on these details. And, but why not let that just naturally come to pass? Why do you have to force the issue? Um, I don't see anything Vindman did as being out of line. He was asked to go testify to Congress, which has oversight function. He did. Uh, when he had concerns inside the government, he went through an approved and uh, uh, not a wide open public process. So that sort of begs the question, what do we expect these people in the government to do uh, when called to Congress? And it really also shows just how weak uh, the legislative branch and oversight of Congress has become in comparison to the executive branch. President Trump has pushed the limits on all of these things. And it, it also just begs the question, why do this? Uh, if he might have cycled out in the next few weeks or months, uh, why go this extra step of really pushing him out of the White House other than to make a public spectacle of it? Yeah, Clint, uh, I do want to just, uh, if I were Tom Keene, rip up the script um, just a little bit, uh, because I know you, your most recent book, Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News, uh, that while all of this uh, political uh, drama is going on. We got the announcement from Attorney General Bill Barr today about the Equifax hack uh, back in 2017, basically charging China's People's Liberation Army for hacking into Equifax and stealing the information of, of millions and millions of customers. I'm wondering, do you feel on the balance like we've gotten safer or less safe when it comes to our ability to counter and detect some of these potential hacks? I think we've gotten a lot better. What I would point out, I was thrilled that the Justice Department did that today. What I point out, though, is that actually occurred in 2017. So there's some some things to think about. One, uh, what China uh, was doing and has done and continues to do is build up big data from around the world. And big data powers artificial intelligence. It is the fuel for that machine. The more data you have, the more you can learn, the more you can learn, the more you can power your economy. And this comes at a time where here in the United States, we're talking about data privacy and beating, kind of beating up on big tech in our own country. China's running wild in the space. And so they have fuel from their own country and from the West now. And so when we look at how we retaliate on this, we're talking about four hackers, I think, that, that came out in the indictment. They've probably hacked thousands more times in the last two years, two and a half years since that happened. And it really shows how long it takes to do one of these investigations and how weak our retaliatory measures really are. We're going to indict those four hackers and nothing will happen to them ultimately. But the good news is we're finally coming around to building a system and doing something about something we've not been able to do really for the last decade. Clint Watts, thank you so much for being with us. Clint Watts, Distinguished Research Fellow uh, for Foreign Policy Research Institute, also the author of Messing with the Enemy, Surviving in a Social Media World of Hackers, Terrorists, Russians, and Fake News. Yeah, it's interesting, the commentary about the, the hacking, it's just a question, uh, even before you think about that, and it's just, you know, as good as the defenses can be, as much money as companies invest in protecting their data, uh, the other side is also uh, making strides as well. So it seems like what we've heard from the experts as it relates to hacking cybersecurity, a never ending, uh, you know, kind of battle uh, between uh, the hackers and the, the folks being hacked. So uh, we'll obviously pay attention to that.
I think it's fitting, Paul, at a time when gold is absolutely in vogue for us to focus on another precious uh, yes. stone of sorts or metal. Uh, not a precious metal, stone, diamonds. Uh, let's talk diamonds. And luckily we have with us the expert, Debbie Azar, president and co-founder of Gemological Science International, based in New York, joining us here in our interactive broker studios, focusing on evaluating, studying uh, precious gems, and in particular diamonds, for years. And Debbie, I just want to get started because we've had people on this program talking about lab-grown diamonds and that that's going to absolutely revolutionize the entire industry because you can't tell the difference. Have you seen real inroads made by the lab-grown diamond producers and do you think that it does materially affect the value of the naturally found diamond? Yeah, well, um, right now, overall, it's an $87 billion industry, and only 2% of that right now is lab-grown diamonds. Um, You can definitely, as a laboratory, we see both on a daily basis. So we certify natural diamonds, and we also certify lab-grown diamonds. They are not the same thing, and it's important for consumers to really understand what the key differences are. Um, Either option is fine, as long as you really understand what you're purchasing and also the reason for your purchase but from let's say a gemological standpoint they have the same chemical optical and physical properties but they're not the same in the sense of their origin where they came from and also the time that they took to grow so natural diamonds are billions of years old they're formed hundreds of miles beneath the earth's surface they're rare they're precious no two are ever the same and the supply of the supply will eventually exhaust itself Um, Lab-grown diamonds are really technology at its finest. You can, they're grown in factories over weeks or months. And because we can always grow more, the supply is infinite. And that does leave a lot of possibilities for where it can be used. So are people still buying diamonds as much as they used to? What's the trend in in kind of diamond demand? Yeah, absolutely. So people are still buying diamonds. And I think consumers are just doing this a lot differently than they used to. I think retailers have done a really great job of enhancing the consumer's overall buying experience and shopping experience. So whether it's online or in store, and today for consumers, it's become a real integrated journey. Many will start online to do a lot of research or homework about what they're buying. And then they'll walk into a store to really look, see, feel, and experience the product. And it's all about really creating an informative, educational, and really memorable experience. It's all about when the consumer wants to buy how they want to buy and where they want to buy and they're still buying diamonds today. I'm struggling to understand the correlation Mm -hmm. between the haven asset, the sort of store of value and precious gems. We certainly see it with gold to a large degree, although Mm -hmm. there are a lot of other factors. Is there a sort of commensurate increase in value during times of uncertainty for diamonds? For diamonds, yes, definitely. Um, Diamonds historically have always maintained their value. Um, Diamonds have inherent value. And over time, they do appreciate. You know, I think many consumers, the reason that they like natural diamonds is they can always upgrade. They can trade it in. There's a secondhand market for them. With lab-grown diamonds right now, it's still something that's very new. So we're uncertain about the long-term value of it. And of course, since it's something we can continue to grow more and more um, with time, that could mean that the value will go down a little bit. So on this show, we talk a lot about investing in stocks and bonds. And one of the things we hear about from investors is increased interest in ESG, environmental, social uh, governance. And I know in the diamond industry, that's a big issue as well. You hear, I'm sure you're getting more and more 
uh, uh, questions from consumers about that. What's what's kind of the status of the of the industry as it relates to that? Where yeah. the diamonds come from and how they're sourced and all that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, consumers are all about transparency and they want to know all about their diamonds, where they came from. It's interesting at GSI, we were one of the first laboratories to offer a mines to market report, which tells you all about your diamonds journey from the mine all the way to the market. And I think it's really important for people to understand also the millions of jobs that the industry provides around the world, the social benefits that we provide and how we sustain local economies around the world. We provide jobs in some of the most remote regions in the world, in Africa, India, Northwest Canada, Western Australia, deep in Siberia, and by providing these high quality and safe jobs and also through the local sourcing of products and services, we're able to really provide significant, long lasting, positive um, impacts on these economies. And if we can bring in even Botswana, Botswana is probably a great example of this because it's one of the world's greatest development success stories. And before diamonds were discovered there, there were only four miles of paved roads. Uh Today, there's over 4,000. Poverty's been cut in half. Every child receives a free education. There's now over 300 schools. And this is really all because of the economic stability our industry is able to provide to help create basic infrastructure, healthcare, education, and clean water. Debbie Azar, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you coming in here. Debbie Azar, president and co-founder, Gemological Science uh, International, based here in New York, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. I didn't know there was such a thing as lab-grown diamonds. I didn't yeah, know no, it's thing. actually um, a growing a growing industry that basically they've come out with a way to actually replicate the billions of years that it took to generate diamonds. But then it sort of raises a question of their store of value. But I, of course, start looking at store of value. And, you know, if you want to raise questions about anything if bitcoin's considered a store of value you know i mean but you know what 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 is value exactly right (laughs) thanks for listening to the bloomberg pnl podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer i'm paul sweeney i'm on twitter at pt sweeney i'm lisa abramowitz i'm on twitter at lisa abramowitz one before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide on bloomberg radio